Well, good morning. Um, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, uh, my name is John. Um, I am a, a good friend of, of Eric's and a friend of Ben's as well. I've been here a, a few times uh, as you guys have been making your way through Revelation. And uh, this morning, um, forgive the baseball reference, but we find ourselves rounding third and looking at home. Uh, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 18. Uh, we will go through the whole chapter, and then we will find ourselves kind of ending our time in the first 10 verses of chapter 19. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, I'm going to start reading. I, it, we have a lot of text this morning, so I'm not going to read all of it. Um, that's not because all of it isn't equally important. Um, but what I want to do is I want to read a couple of readings from this, from chapter 18 is going to be the first one, and then the, the second reading is going to be from the beginning of, of 19, be, because what these two things do is they show us that this passage really gives us a picture of a tale of two women. And we're going to read of those women this morning before we jump into the sermon. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, After this I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. Then I heard another voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid, and double it. According to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her, as much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways. Give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow, and I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a mass multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. Who is seated on the, on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. 
Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, if it's your first time here, welcome. Merry Christmas. Um, You might have not realized that you were going to kind of stumble your way into uh, a church this morning, maybe expecting a a sermon about the meek and mild, lowly baby Jesus born in a manger. And instead, we find ourselves in the book of Revelation in chapter 18, where we see a ruling and reigning Christ exercising judgment over this wicked society, Babylon. That's weird. It's just a weird Christmas sermon, but it's not. Because that meek and mild, lowly Savior was born a king. And that king was appointed by God to rule and reign over all things. And when Jesus himself walked out of the tomb, he put the powers of darkness on notice. The king of kings will reign, is reigning. And he wins. And here's the thing. Like, again, you you might not have known that you were walking into a series. Maybe you did. Maybe that's why you're here. Like, man, this church is preaching through Revelation. There's, There's something special about them. Maybe that's you. But maybe you didn't realize that you were going to kind of walk into a series through one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. But I'm glad you did. I'm glad you're here because this passage gives us details about God's judgment against the city, which is described symbolically as this prostitute, Babylon. And again, while it may not be the Christmas sermon you were expecting, I do think it is an encouraging Christmas sermon for two reasons. First of all, I hope you're encouraged by the fact that we're not going to preach around or ignore the difficult passages of the Bible. I think, I think that's an encouraging thing, right? We're not concerned about preaching our own ideas and thoughts. We believe the Bible, all of it, is God's word, which means God reveals his very self to us in the scriptures. And he does not do this care- carelessly. This is important. Think about this. God revealed himself in the scriptures, but why? Why did God reveal himself to us in the scriptures? And this is why. So that we might be rescued by Jesus, the one who the scriptures point to. And this gets us to the second reason why I hope you're encouraged that that during this Christmas season, the Redeemer is continuing to preach through the book of Revelation. Because the theme of our passage is actually really simple this morning. Jesus wins. He wins, guys. He triumphs over evil and will call all that is wrong with this world to the carpet. He will deal swiftly and exhaustively with all that is wrong and set it to right. When God sent his son to be born, to take on humanity and be born of a virgin, God sent his son on an all-out conquest over the forces of evil. And it was not a fair fight. They were put to shame on the cross when Jesus dealt a fatal blow to the devil. And one day, that judgment that began at the cross, this is important. God's judgment is not something that we are waiting for that's going to happen in the future. God's judgment began at the cross. When Paul, as he writes in Colossians 2, says that the powers of darkness were put to open shame. They were embarrassed at the cross. Because what looked like defeat was actually the king of the world crushing the head of that great dragon, the serpent, the devil. 
And because of what Jesus did on the cross, for those of you in here who are filled with the Spirit, who, who have trusted in Christ, who believe in Christ, Satan has lost his grip on you. Not only that, but death, the great enemy of God, has lost its grip on you. And it's that judgment that we're looking at more, more fully today. You see, Revelation is a book that uses symbols to tell us what the world is really like. Through visions given to the Apostle John while he was in exile, God shows us exactly what he has been doing since Christ rose from the grave. And he shows us from a heavenly perspective how the things happening in history, the present, and the future serve actually to carry out God's plan to renew all things in Christ. What we learn in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is actually the Lord of history. And Revelation shows how he reigns throughout history. And last week, Eric unpacked this vision from chapter 17 of this great prostitute riding a beast, and her name is Babylon. She's drunk with the blood of the saints, which shows you that she stands in opposition to God's people. This graphic image is describing something significant that you and I encounter actually every single day. And just like the beast in Revelation 13, Babylon, the prostitute, is an instrument in the hands of the demonic forces to wage war against God's people. But when you read through the book of Revelation, I think we can all be honest, I, I get a little confused sometimes. Because when you look at this, this image of the beast, and, and then now we have this image of a, of a prostitute who's riding a beast, there, there's a lot of overlap, Right? And so it, it, what we need to do is we kind of get reoriented, kind of look at these two images and, and try to discern what's the difference between these two things. Because here's the thing, they are very related, they, they do work together, right? They're both demonically influenced forces of darkness that are waging war against God's people, but they're, 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 their battle plan is just a little, little different. In order to keep us straight on well, who these figures are, the beast and the prostitute, uh, someone once helpfully described them this way, and I, I think it's very helpful. The beast is a symbol in Revelation used to describe demonically influenced rulers and governments who seek to push us away from allegiance to Christ. So think pushing God's people away from allegiance to Christ through coercion and deception into the arms of the power-hungry state. It's the kind of evil that leverages its power against the church by saying, do this or else. Take the mark or we'll take away what is precious to you. Give us your allegiance or your life will be hard. Babylon, the prostitute, is a little different. Rather than pushing this symbol, which describes demonically influenced desires and ideas, it doesn't push us from allegiance, it actually pulls us. It allures us away from Christ through seductive evil. Instead of using coercion and violence to push you away from Christ through manipulation, it says, come with me and I will show you the way to live. I will show you the good life, one filled with pleasure. It pulls us away from Christ by tempting us with a love for the world, the same kind of love for the world that the Apostle John wrote about earlier in a letter to the church in chapter two when he said, do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and all these things are passing away. But those who do the will of God will abide, will remain forever. This is why language of riches, comfort, and sexual immorality are used throughout Revelation 17 and 18 to describe Babylon's activity against God and his people. 
Babylon pulls you through seduction and the lie of fulfilling your desires, promising life, and yet only being able to provide death. Revelation 17 gives a description of the prostitute. And Revelation 18 and 19, where we are this morning, shows us that Babylon's fall is certain. That society, which is filled with such worldliness, who's chosen with their lives to say no to Christ, will get exactly what they've earned. But the spotless bride, this collective society that we call the church, who has said yes to Christ, giving their lives and worship to him, will get what they could have never earned by themselves. They will feast victoriously with King Jesus as evil is conquered and all that is wrong with the world is wiped away. I want to show you three things in these, two, uh, in these two chapters this morning. The first is I want you to see that Babylon will fall by the hand of Christ. The second is the bride will feast at the table of Christ. And the third is that we must, in light of these things, come out of Babylon and feast with Christ. All right, Babylon will fall by the hand of Christ. This passage is a tale of two women. Babylon, this great prostitute, and the bride, the church of God. And we might be surprised that God's using this image of a bride and a prostitute when depicting two very different cities. But often in the Bible, God uses women and the image of women to describe societies and people groups at large. Right In the book of Hosea, right, the, the, the rebellious Israel is actually described as a prostitute who's turned away from her lover to, to choose other lovers for himself. The, the reason why is because that kind of betrayal, that kind of adultery, is, is the kind of betrayal that Israel was committing against God when they turned against God in idolatry and committed themselves to other idols. And in fact, the way that Hosea kind of walks through Israel's rebellion the people of Israel have taken the good gifts that God has, has given them, and they've actually attributed the source of those gifts to these idols. So they've taken what God could only give them, and they're saying, I've got, I got it over here instead. It would be like me getting my wife an engagement ring, pledging myself to her, and her saying she got it from another man. It's betrayal. But in, in, in the New Testament, the church is also depicted as a woman, right? This, this bride of Christ, right? And we see in Ephesians 5 that the relationship between Christ and the church is actually a marriage. And in fact, it's not just a marriage. It is the marriage in which every marriage points to, which is why marriage matters, friends. And we don't get to mess with it and define what we think it is. Because marriage is a significant picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And in Revelation 17, 14, Babylon is described this way. Think about this. They're making war against the lamb. But there's a promise in Revelation 17, 14 that the lamb will conquer them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. So those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Revelation shows us, 18 shows us a vision describing the responses of Babylon and the responses of the bride to Christ's conquering. Those who have cozied up with Babylon will grieve, while those who have given themselves in allegiance to Christ will rejoice. Babylon will fall by the hand of Christ, and her judgment is certain. Look with me at verses, verses 6 through 8 in chapter 18. It says, pay her back the way that she also paid, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. As much as she has glorified herself, this is speaking of Babylon, this wicked society, 
As much as she has glorified herself and indulged in her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow. This is, this is a, a false assurance. This is her basically saying, no one can touch me for this reason. Her plagues will come in just one day. Death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. As much as Babylon has glorified herself and indulged in her sensual ways with these demonic ideas and desires, Christ will give her the same measure of torment and grief. The punishment fits the crime. And if you are not convinced, Babylon mocks God with self-assurance. It would be like me being sentenced, receiving a verdict from a judge, and assuring the judge that I could never be caught even while I'm already wearing handcuffs. The sentence against Babylon's already given. The verdict has already gone out, and she has committed a capital offense, costing her not only her life, but her eternity. I've heard someone use the image of a condemned building to talk about what's happening here, and I think it's helpful, right? So when a building is beyond repair, right, you don't just, like, send contractors in to remodel it. What do they do? They knock that thing down. They condemn the building. The moment they condemn the building, the building doesn't get destroyed. No, no, no. What happens is you write a condemnation notice. You put it on the building. The building has been deemed unsafe. Nobody needs to go near it. But destruction day is coming. Right? It isn't safe to enter. The building's already condemned. Destruction is not just a possibility of something that might happen. It's a matter of time. In the same way, the judgment of Babylon is certain. Christ placed the condemnation notice on Babylon when he died and rose from the grave. Demolition day will come at his return. Babylon has fallen, is fallen, and will fall. Her judgment is a guarantee, but her judgment is also warranted. The severity of her crimes against God is, as the text says, piled up to heaven. Could you imagine? Isn't it interesting that the text here says that the sins of Babylon have piled up to heaven. And in Genesis 11, the first time that we get a picture of what wicked society in Babylon is like, they're trying to build a tower to the heavens. Trying to be and reach a status that only God could reach on their own. And what God says is, you could never reach the heavens, but your sins have. And I will hold you accountable for each and every one of them. God is not, this is very important. God is not in any way unjust to carry out the sentence against Babylon. As Eric spoke about last week, when we look at Babylon, we have to at some level include ourselves because the reality is all of us at some level have cozied up to Babylon at one point in our life. Maybe you're soliciting the services of Babylon right now. We have kissed her lips, expecting to taste honey, but only receiving a worldly poison that keeps us crawling back more and more and more. Some of you in here, understandably so, might look at the punishment of God as something that is too severe. You're bothered by the biblical idea of an eternal conscious torment for those who have chosen to say no to Jesus. Yet the way our passage speaks about those who have turned away from Christ actually shows us that this judgment is, is not unreasonable. It's totally warranted. Notice the responses of the witnesses in Babylon's fall. Look with me at Revelation. I'm just going to read a couple passages in verses 9 through 20 in chapter 18. 
what this is, starting in verse 9 all the way through 20, is, is this is a, a, a poem that shows the response of those who have cozied up to Babylon. And, and they're in three categories. The kings of the earth, these merchants, and these seafaring shipmasters. And all of them have stood to gain from Babylon's excess. Listen to, to some of these right here. The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality, this is verse 9, and shared her sensual and excessive ways will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo any longer. You see, because when Babylon falls, the merchants who cozied up with Babylon, their wallet will take a hit and they will grieve. It lists a bunch of goods that they're, they're, they're looking. And in case you didn't know that this society was wicked to the core, look at the last one. It talks about frankincense and wine and olive oil, flour, grain, cattle, sheep. But then it says at the end, slaves. And in case you didn't know who he was talking about, the text goes out of its way to say human lives. So if you did not think that the Bible condemns slavery, here's your text right here. Babylon will be held to account for the way that they've enslaved men. The fruit you craved has left you, verse 14. All your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. Verse 15, the merchants of these things who became rich from her, who benefited from Babylon. Because think about it this way. When society rises to the top in wickedness, someone stands to gain. Somebody is profiting off of a wicked society. It has happened since human history began. But here we see the merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand far off and fear her torment, weeping and mourning. And every shipmaster, verse 17, seafarer and sailors and all who do business by the sea stood far off. And they watched from her burning, crying out, who was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying, weeping and mourning. When the wicked world prospers, it should be no surprise to us that those who give their allegiance most to Babylon actually stand to lose the most if the world they know it crumbles. These three groups mourn the downfall of Babylon, and when they see the great city come to great destruction, there is great mourning. They're mourning the losses it causes on their livelihood, but notice what they're not mourning. No one who cozies up to Babylon, who has said no to Christ, will mourn their sin when they meet the eyes of the judge. Think about that. There will be no remorse in hell. There will be no regret in hell. No one will regret their sin. They will regret the loss of all that once was, cherishing the good old days of their prosperity and cursing the God who took it from them. And it's interesting because the good old days were not actually so good. They're deceived. Just like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness talking about the steak they used to eat in Egypt. They just kind of so happened to forget that they were enslaved. The great tragedy here is not the fact that Babylon will eternally suffer under the hand of God's judgment. The great tragedy here is that they spit on the same hand when it was held out to them in grace. That's the tragedy. The tragedy is not that they will be condemned. 
The tragedy is, is that for the last 2,000 years, God has been extending his hand to Babylon in grace, saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and if you come to me, you will find the rest you're looking for. You see, the judgment of God has been stayed since Jesus walked out of the tomb. Friends, don't miss that. Chapter 18 clearly gives us both the reality and the reason for Babylon's fall at the hand of Christ. And then it shows the response of those who belong to the city of Babylon. And in this tale of two cities, the prostitute mourns at the face of judgment from what she loses. Yet the bride, that pure spotless bride, which we call the church, she rejoices. And she rejoices not because of what is lost, but because of what she gains. Chapter 18 closes with this statement of the finality of Babylon's judgment, saying, Then a mighty angel picked up a stone, a millstone. I'm reading in verse 21. And threw it in the sea, saying, In the same way Babylon the great city will be thrown down violently and never be found again. And after poetically describing the finality with various illustrations of, of, of silence in the city, which is a symbolic way of, of, of John saying, All joy is sucked out of Babylon. He says this, in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and all of those who were slaughtered on the earth. Then the next vision in chapter 19 begins with the shouting of God's people saying hallelujah. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, avenging the blood of his servants that was on her hands. Why in the world would the bride rejoice in the face of God's judgment? Why? Because as the certainty of God's judgment is felt by God's enemies, the certainty of salvation is found by his people. Each of us has at some point in our life said no to Jesus. But I hope for those of you in here today still saying no, still holding on to the world and still making your home in Babylon that you would say yes to Christ because Jesus wins. It's a statement of fact. Whether you believe it or not, Jesus wins. Your lack of faith in Christ does not make his victory any less true. And your persistent lack of faith in Christ, even as you hear the proclamation of the gospel over and over and over again, is just another brick laid up to the heaven-reaching tower of sins justifying the judgment of Babylon and all who reside in her. But if you would today instead reach toward Christ, you would find your whole record of sins laid upon the shoulders of Jesus. If you would today look to Christ, he will remove your raggedy grave clothes and give you fresh white linens. He will adorn you with the righteousness that could only be accomplished through Jesus himself and no one in Babylon. Babylon's teeth itself will have lost their grip on you for you would have held no longer to Babylon. Instead, you will be held by Jesus himself, and he promises to never let you go. This is the certain salvation promised to all who rest in Christ. And after the world is judged, Babylon is laid to, re to rest and laid waste. God's people will feast. They will feast in joyful celebration. Evil's gone. The kingdom is here. The certainty of the bride's rescue hits different when it comes on the back end of Revelation. 
right? You, you kind of see the, the veil peeled back on reality in Revelation, and it actually shows you a state of the world that really is bleak. God's people are being bombarded by the powers of darkness. God's people are pulled by the seductive allure of Babylon. Everything in this dark world is telling you to turn away from your Savior. Everything. Life itself will be easier if you turn away. And you're promised that by this world. You know it's not true, but the more you hear it, it just just seems plausible. The great war leaves many of us weary. And when we look around, it seems like the enemy is winning, and we wonder how such a great enemy could ever fall. We wonder how such weak people like us could stand against such evil times. It reminds me of this moment in the second Lord of the Rings movie when Frodo and Sam are confronted with great evil before them in their quest. They're on their way to destroy this one ring, and they, they're trying to find the strength to keep going, even though evil is just piling up around them. And when defeat seems so close, Sam says this. He says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those are the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. The promise of the marriage feast coming for those who cling to Jesus shows that our end is happy. The world will go back to the way it was before Adam sinned, even after so much bad has happened. The shadow of Babylon is a passing thing. The king will come. He will slay the dragon. He will get the bride, and a new day will dawn. Her salvation is certain, and her salvation is undeserved. The salvation and rescue of the bride seems certain, but unlike the judgment coming to Babylon, it's not deserved. The bride gets the reward she could have never earned on her own, for apart from the saving work of Jesus, she too would remain a citizen of Babylon condemned to judgment. Right? It's Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, Paul says, we're saved by grace. She's not saved by her own working. She can't brag about her salvation as if it was something that she accomplished on her own. Guys, we're saved through faith. If we we believe, Christ rescues. Christ rescues. We don't rescue ourselves. He gives us a new heart. We don't make a new heart for ourselves. He takes us from Babylon and makes us citizens of God's kingdom. Or as Paul says, he transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. And through the spirit, he clothes us with righteousness. Like verse 19.8, we are given clothes that, could, that we could have never purchased by ourselves. Look at 19.8. It says the bride is given fine linen to wear. Right, Um, Verse 6, I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, the sound of cascading waters. They say hallelujah because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Verse 8, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. And the text doesn't leave us to wonder what that linen is. The text says in verse 8, it symbolically represents the righteous acts of God's people. 
this actually gives us a deeper look into the undeserved nature of our salvation. If we came to the wedding feast on our own, friends, we would always be underdressed. So underdressed that we wouldn't even be allowed in. You know how like when you get a wedding invitation, we just got a wedding invitation in the mail, and it kind of, it said like uh, formal, like suit jackets and ties only. Now, it's great. The dress code's there, but here's the thing. Like our, our culture is so non-confrontational. If I showed up in a hoodie, nobody would kick me out, right? Like nobody would kick me out. But here is different. Because Christ clothes us with garments so grand that they actually are appropriate enough for this great occasion. Think of how great it will be when the bride of Christ meets Jesus. How grand. It will be the day of days. And you will actually be given clothes that are appropriate to wear on such a day. You don't have to go to Brooks Brothers and rent a tux. But think about this. Here we see our righteous acts are a gift given to God from us. That's interesting. Because I don't know about you, my heart is prone to be wicked. Even in Christ, I'm tempted to to be pulled away from Jesus. And what we see in verse 8 is an amazing picture of the grace and the, the majesty of our Redeemer. Because your righteous acts, your best performance as a Christian, any aspect of your life that makes you look genuinely Christian, are gifts of grace from the hands of your Redeemer. Verse 8 itself is enough to see that while we are not saved because of our good works, our salvation changes us so deeply that we actually begin to do the good things that God calls us to do. We, we actually live our lives in a way that glorifies and makes God known among the nations. And this gives me to my third and final point this morning. For this, we have to actually go back to verse 4 in chapter 18. We've read it already. But when you look at this whole section, verse 4 is really the only command given to God's people in the whole passage. Right? This is the, okay, Babylon has fallen. The bride will dine with Christ. What then shall we do? Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins and receive any of her plagues. The warning is that if you refuse to come out of Babylon, you will suffer with Babylon. And this is the heart of our passage this morning. If we, if we do not heed the words of Revelation 18.4, we will be like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and turns away and forgets what he looks like in James 1. We become hearers of the word and not doers of the word. We become the kind of hypocritical Christians that no one actually likes. To look back at Jesus' warnings to the seven churches, if we do not heed Revelation 18.4 and and pay very careful attention to what we are being called to do, we become like Christians who have lost their first love. We become the kind of Christian who tolerates the woman Jezebel, a, a symbol of adulterous rebellion in partnership with Babylon. As John tells the church, the churches, we might have the appearance of being alive, but inwardly we are dead. We do not have a living faith adorned with fruitfulness. We, we have a dead faith. We are, as John says to the church of Laodicea, lukewarm or useless in the hands of Jesus. We must come out of Babylon and hold fast to Jesus. We must come out of Babylon and feast with Christ. Again, Babylon is described in Revelation 17 and 18 as a demonically influenced city shaped by ideas and desires which pull you away from faithfulness to Jesus. Can you think about any ideas or desires in your life 
that have been influenced by your culture that you currently live in that pull you away from Christ. It's described as sexual immorality to symbolically point to the degree of betrayal that this pulls you toward. Your devotion, you were created in the image and likeness of God. Your devotion, whether you know Christ or not, belongs to God. But as you cozy up and give your, uh, your, your devotion to Babylon, you solicit other, uh, other lovers in an attempt to find life apart from Jesus. It includes actual sexual immorality, but it's also so much more than that. In Babylon, you find human trafficking. In Babylon, you find a slave trade. In Babylon, you find the wealthy benefiting from the poor who are oppressed and taken advantage of. In Babylon, you find revelry and rebellion against God celebrated. In Babylon, you find righteousness abhorred and hated. In Babylon, you find all kinds of wicked perversions. In Babylon, wickedness is easy. Christian living is hard. In Babylon, worldliness is virtue, and Christ-likeness is vice. The original audience would have certainly saw the society of Rome in John's descriptions of Babylon. Eric talked about that last week. But Rome is not the only Babylon, is it? There was once a time when the sun never set on the Spanish or the British Empire until it did. And ever since World War II, you and I have lived in the single most influential and powerful society on the planet, the United States. And the fall of such civilizations, you need to understand this, are guaranteed. When Jesus returns, the United States will cease to exist. If that bothers you, we should have a conversation. Do not think of me as saying this is anti-patriotism. Think of me as saying this is where our allegiance lies first. We are citizens of heaven. But what this shows us is something that's very, very, very challenging for us today. Because friends, you and I, like Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel, are in Babylon. And if you, you miss that, I fear for you. You cannot get out of Revelation 18 and 19 and miss the clear connections to our own society, the allure of Hollywood, the promises of Wall Street, and the triumph of the sexual revolution. It's all here. Just spend 10 minutes on any social media platform or news website. All of them drip with the kind of immorality characteristic of Babylon. And if you are in Babylon, which you are, the question we have to ask is, what does it actually mean for us to come out of Babylon? Do not think of this as a call to distance, okay? Right? We're not called to all move out into the remote places of the world and establish self-governed Christian communes. I'm not saying that, and the text isn't telling us to do that, right? The call to come out of Babylon is not a call of distance as much as it, as it is a call of distinction, this is the closest you will find to that phrase many of you who grew up in the church heard over and over and over, to be in the world but not of the world, which actually isn't a phrase you find in the Bible. But the aroma or the flavor of that idea is all over the scriptures. We are to be in Babylon but not allow Babylon to be in us. 
We are Christians, not Babylonians. This is why Peter writes to the church in his letters and calls them sojourners and exiles. It's a call to be unapologetically Christian to the glory of God in a world that wants nothing of Christ. It's living with the courage to, um, this might sound a little crass, but to come out of the closet, as it were, in your Christianity. Where you're no longer living your Christianity in secret before men. It is to resist the temptation to cover the beautiful garments of righteousness that Christ graciously gave you. Like wearing a hoodie over a perfectly amazing suit. Some of you might not like, like the, feel comfortable in a suit, but this suit fits like perfectly. You don't want to throw a hoodie on that thing. Not only would you look ridiculous, it would kind of feel ridiculous. If your allegiance to Christ is true, then all other things around you should be able to crumble and you will rest secure. If something in your life were to fall and it shake you, maybe, maybe, that's pulling at an area of your heart that has more allegiance to Babylon than Christ. When Babylon falls, and it will fall, all, with the wor- all that is wrong with the world will be shaken out. Do you know what will be left? The bride. The bride will be left. And she will sing. And she will sing triumphantly. And so will you be shaken with Babylon by the judgment of God, or will you feast with the bride of Christ himself at the last day? Come to Christ. Come out of Babylon, and you will find a Christ that will never reject a sinner who comes to him, not mourning the loss of what they stand to lose, but mourning the sin that they lay down at the feet of their Savior, seeking forgiveness. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given us life in Christ. God, that you have given us everything we need to be able to come out of Babylon. God, and I pray that if there's anyone in here who has a desire to come to Christ, but they are afraid for what they stand to lose, God, that your spirit would do a mighty work in their hearts, that they would see this world and all its promises as totally worthless, that they would look to the scriptures and see that when all is shaken, Christ and his people will stand and Christ will be ruling and reigning, and that is a king worth following. God, may we give our lives to that king. May we give our lives in worship to that king. And God, would you help us to exercise and know with wisdom how we might come out of Babylon and cling to our Savior. Amen.